Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. If you're new to the congregation this morning, welcome. After uh, I read the text, I'll say, this is God's word, and if you could reply, thanks be to God. Hear now God's word. By faith, uh, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is God's holy and inspired word. Indeed. You can have a seat. The title of today is uh, When I Come to Die. And when I come to die. Hopefully you recognize that phrase. It's from a hymn by Fernando Ortega. I had the opportunity of seeing him sing that song at our... um, senior year in seminary. Uh, What a beautiful time that was. I want to speak to you today about a faith that dies well in Christ Jesus. One feature of true Christianity is that it points us to the reality of death and the life thereafter. This is not because we as Christians have a strange interest in morbidity, but because only those prepared to die are prepared to live. It is no surprise then that false religion of any kind, whether it be materialism or secularism or other religions of the day, it's no surprise then that false religion is short-sighted The devil understands that sinners prefer their blessings now rather than tomorrow. His aim is to take our gaze away from the last day and fix it on this present and passing world. Though a good world it is. Scripture, on the other hand, And Hebrews 11 in particular with these portraits of faith tell us that all the great people of God have looked not to the present age so much, but to the end of this age. Moses spurned the wealth of Egypt. Paul covered the Mediterranean world with the gospel. And Abraham left home For a city that has foundations, a better country, a heavenly one. Why? Because they understood the reality of death and the life thereafter. I wonder, uh, in your Bible reading, maybe it's coming to an end in that year Bible reading coming up on December, if you notice how much emphasis the Lord Jesus Christ places on the last day, Earthquakes and wars, persecutions and sufferings, midterm elections, and social political changes in history are comparatively small matters, a prelude to the great event of which we will all share in the coming of our Lord in glory. 
I just want to give you a few verses to jog your memory. That the scriptures emphasize the coming of our great God and King. Hebrews 12, 26. Hebrews 12, 26. Yet once more, the author of Hebrews says, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. James 5, 8. Establish your hearts, he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There is an emphasis, an urging upon the apostles to you and to me that this life someday is coming to an end. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 20 or 31, the appointed time has grown very short. The present form of this world is passing away. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. People of God, the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles are emphatic. The ebb and flow of history is of small importance ultimately. What really matters at the end of the day is what you believe when you come to die. Only those whose eye is on the future can serve properly now on earth. We must have a forward-looking faith. Well, Joseph was one man. All that is introduction. Joseph was one man whose eye was on the future. Look what he says again, the author of Hebrews in verse 22 of chapter 11. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Joseph, in other words, had a faith reaching about 400 years into the future and lays claim, lays hold of a promise God gave to him and says, you know, someday our descendants are going to leave this place, Egypt, and finally go home to the promised land. It was a faith that looked towards the future. Now what happened in Joseph's life so that at the end of life he could talk like this? Well, here's what I want to stress to you as point number one. I want to recap with you the life of Joseph. And boys and girls, you have to keep me on my toes this morning, okay? Watch the details, making sure I'm on the life of Joseph correctly here. Number one, I want to talk to you about the life of Joseph. And then we'll take some lessons from his life at the end. The life of Joseph. Joseph is a key figure in the closing chapters of Genesis. He was the 11th son of jo- uh, Jacob. Joseph was the apple of his father's eye, you could say. The recipient of the famous coat of many colors. That's right. This gift, however, provoked jealousy on the part of his brothers. I don't think it helped that Joseph had the nerve to boast about this dream, that his brothers would bow down to him uh, one day. That didn't help. And so when Jacob sends his 17-year-old son, Joseph, to find his brothers, what are they doing? They're plotting to kill him. Reuben, one of the brothers, talks the others into throwing Joseph down a well. 
knowing that he, Reuben, would later return and rescue Joseph. Instead, Joseph is sold to traitors who take Joseph to Egypt, where he is sold again to Potiphar. While in Potiphar's service, God favors Joseph through a series of events, including two years in prison. We'll skip over those for the time, for time's sake. And interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, Genesis 41, Joseph becomes second in command over all of Egypt. Now, pause the story for just a moment right here. At this point in Joseph's life, he's 30 years old. He went into um, prison at 17. So that means for the most of the life of Joseph, what we know his life to be, uh, is, covers 13 years. He dies at the age of 110. So he's 30 when he comes to power. So I can do the math, I think. Roughly 80 years. Joseph lives in faith, governing and ruling Egypt. And the point I want to make here is the faith that it takes to suffer well in those 13 years is the same faith it takes to live and eventually die well. It's as hard to live for Jesus as it is to die and suffer for Jesus. We may not know what Joseph did for those 80 years, But he lived in faith, looking forward to the promise that someday his people would escape this place and go back home. The faith it takes to suffer well is the same faith it takes to live and die well. Back to Joseph being 30 years old. When famine strikes Joseph's homeland, Canaan, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to purchase grain. So hopefully you can see God's providence uh, zeroing in here on Joseph. Uh, Egypt by now is experiencing a surplus of grain precisely because of Joseph and his skills. One of the greatest biblical ironies, Joseph recognizes his brothers and they begin to bow down before him. It's a fulfillment of that dream long ago. Joseph quizzes his brothers for information about his family and father. He then arranges for his brothers to return to Canaan and retrieve his missing brother, Benjamin. When his brothers appear a second time, this time with Benjamin, uh, Joseph is overcome with emotion. And that scene is just so uh, endearing and touching as Joseph is is overcome with this um, Sadness, yet joy, seeing his family. He reveals who he is to his brothers and arranges to meet his father Jacob in the land of Goshen. And Goshen is the place where the Israelites will live until the day of their exodus in the night of the Passover. When Joseph learns that his father Jacob is dying, he goes to see him. Another endearing scene. As each son gathers around Jacob, right, you gather around me, you know, here's this father taking his sons around him. Jacob blesses all of his sons, 
But the greatest blessing is reserved for Joseph. And in that blessing, Joseph learns that Israel's future, oddly enough, is not in the land of Egypt where he's risen to power and prominence. He learns in that blessing from Jacob that their future is in the land God promised to his great-grandfather Abraham, his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob. The promised land. And that's why Joseph comes when he comes to die. This is why he tells his brothers and by virtue of his, his descendants of an exodus. He remembers that promise that someday, somehow, in some way, we're going home. And when we go home, I want you to take my bones and bury them there, not in Egypt, where I've lived all my life, but in the land of promise. 400 years later, And a lot of things happening. Joseph is buried in Shechem. Do you know where Shechem is? Right in the heart of the land of promise. And the only reason Joseph could mention the Exodus that much earlier was because God promised it. That's it. How do you know? Let's transition to us now. Your sins are forgiven. Can you taste them? See it? Can you touch your sins being forgiven? No. You believe your sins are forgiven when you come to Christ and cast yourself upon him solely because God said so. Because he promised he would. That when you come to him, he would cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. That's the only reason you believe this. Why do you believe that you are justified and counted righteous in his sight? Can you touch your righteousness? Can you see it? Can you feel it? I can hardly feel it most of the time. No. The only reason you believe you are righteous before God is because He said by faith and not by works of the law a man is justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Christianity is a strange religion. It's all built on faith in the promises of God. And I would add, it is the most rational and reasonable faith that there is. A self-sufficient, 
awesome, eternal God who never changes, binds us to Himself and to His promises, and not one of His promises have failed. So we are on good ground to believe this God. It is a rational and reasonable faith. Amen. Now, what do we make of these bones? That is so strange. Isn't that strange? Take my bones. I'd be like, hey, man. What you want done with your bones is up to you, man. Take my bones and bury them in the promised land. So imagine being an Israelite and you're going to work and for 400 years you're in slavery and um, I don't know, every now and then you pass by Joseph's coffin and you're like, someday... We're going home. Year after year. Decade after decade. Death after death. I don't know how and I don't know when, but someday that coffin and those bones tell me that we're going home. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad we don't have a box of bones telling us we're going home. We have an empty tomb, right? We have the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ telling us we've been redeemed and an empty grave, a better Joseph, who is reigning and ruling right now in the heavens, governing your life and governing the church and governing this church, that someday, beloved, the pilgrim life will be over. You don't have to look to a man's remains or to a coffin. We have an empty tomb, a man risen from the grave. We're going home one day. We're going home upon his shoulders. All right, that's the life of Joseph. Let's take some lessons from his life, shall we? Just two. Um, Number one, do not be blind to the priorities of life. Do not be blind to the priorities of life. The reason why so many go wrong in this life is because they are blind to what really matters in this life. They have little sense of the judgment to come. Think of the men we're learning about in Sunday school. Darwin, Marx, Freud. Each of these men were profoundly influential And yet all of them 
terribly wrong as it relates to the great goal of history, the day of our death and the coming of our Lord in glory. What a day will be for the ungodly, for the conscience of the ungodly to echo the amen of God's just sentence upon their life. What a day it will be for the ungodly to be gathered into bundles by the angels, to be burned with everlasting fire of divine wrath. Oh, my friend, do not be blind to the priorities of life. You can amass the greatest wealth. You may get the reputation you've always dreamed, but in the end, all that matters is knowing Christ when you come to die. That's why that hymn is so amazing. And when I come to die, oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You can have this world. Oh, when I come to die, give me Jesus. You want to die like that one day? I do. Take a note from Paul in Philippians 3. And today, can all things as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, to be found in Him. Friend, to be a Christian is the most sweetest thing in the world. That's the sweetest thing in the world. Do not be blind to the priorities of life. And two, and we'll close with this. My friend, open your eyes to the glory that lies ahead. Open your eyes to the glory that lies ahead. The present life for the child of God is a place of imperfections and shadows. Is it not? There is the touch of sin upon the best of men and women. There's no church wherein some shadow of error is not found, this one included, mostly included. There's not a relationship without its sorrow, no home without its share of trouble. There's not a Christian in whom past failure or future fear has no part. And yet, when we reflect on the imperfections and sorrows of this life, they are as nothing when we consider the glory that lies ahead. To think, dear friend, of all of your sorrows vanishing forever, your soul and your body entering into unimaginable joy and delight. Can you think of it? Can you imagine it? The swelling of your heart when you see face to face your Redeemer and lover for all time. Can you picture it, beloved? Can you see it with your, with your mind's eye, the eye of faith? Oh, the joy, the swelling of your soul in that day. You're just going to burst with joy. (laughs) 
What a universe of love, one author writes, will be in Christ's face as he gathers his people to him. As those for whom he died. You're going to see joy all over his face. As he gathers, as the better Jacob, gathers his children around him for all of time. Open your eyes, dear friend, to the glory that lies ahead. Heaven is a place of holiness. Did you know this? Revelation 21, 27. Sin will never find an entrance. It will look, it will look. It will never find an entrance. Heaven is a place of security. Revelation 21, 25. The gates are left open in heaven. Why? Because there's no devil, no enemy that can enter in or to warn against. (laughs) So gates are left open. It's a beautiful place to be. Heaven is a place of glory. Revelation 21, 11. The church of God, the heavenly Jerusalem will appear having the glory of God and her glory. Listen to me. Her glory will not be the reflection of any created light. Her glory, Scripture says, will be the very light of the Lamb. Heaven will be a place of glory. And lastly, heaven is a world of love. Zephaniah 3, 17. You will rest in his love. Oh, praise God. You will rest in his love. He will rejoice over thee with singing. Imagine that. Heaven is a place of unspeakable comfort and consolation. Maurice Roberts writes, every motion of every heart in heaven will be animated with this love for God, a love which he has for them and they have for him. My friends, have a faith that looks beyond. Open your eyes to the glory that lies ahead and do not lose sight of what truly matters. And when you come to die, when you come to die, be found in Christ. Be found in Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are so thankful for our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how we want to leave sometimes this pilgrim life and join with you in the church triumphant. But I suppose there's more life to live. Gracious God, give this church a sense of the future. That our faith would not be attached in the here and now, so to speak, but lays hold of the great promise of God that someday we're going home. We can count on it. The tomb is empty. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.